0: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. YouTube Music is a new app that combines everything you'd expect from a streaming service with the magic of YouTube to bring everything to life. With YouTube Music Premium, you'll get ad-free music that plays with the screen off or while using with other apps. Get music wherever you want it, even if you're offline. Please download the new YouTube Music app today and start a free 30-day trial. Then just pay $9.99 a month terms and restrictions apply. There's no reason that you should not mess around with this. It's a powerful app. I love using it, okay? Download it now. Now here's the show. Hello, everybody. How are you doing this fine Wednesday? I'm Ray Harkins. I'm your host, and I'm doing okay. I'll tell you in a minute what that is all about, but you are listening to hundred words or less. This beautiful podcast, and we are concluding the series called "Be Specific." This is our our very inaugural <laughs> mailbag episode, in which I asked you, the listener, to submit some questions in relation to you know the music industry and uh, you know all the things we've kind of been talking about over this past month uh, and also previous discussions as far as like genre specific stuff. But um, yeah, I was I was really happy with the thoughtful questions that people came to the show with and me with and i i had a ton of fun pontificating about this and uh, hopefully being specific in answering questions uh i'd also like to thank everybody who participated in this uh limited run series and kind of you know followed along with this uh, experiment uh i got great feedback and you know i may be continuing it in some capacity Uh, you know, in the future. But uh, as of right now, I was, I was just very satisfied with the way that it all came together. And I really appreciated all the guests that came on here. So if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, dive in there, even if it's people who are like, I don't really know about that. Or like, I don't know if I necessarily care about that subject. Trust me, you, you will (laughs) like, just listen to it. I promise. So yeah. This this is going to be a different uh, you know structure. So I, it's just going to be me. I'm not interviewing anybody. So um, yeah, just just be prepared for that. You know, if you're like, oh Ray, I can only take so much. of You totally fine. I get that. <laughs> My wife tells me that all the time. <laughs> but um, yeah, so w- why I'm doing okay? I don't know. I think it's I don't know if it's it's me aging or if it's the um, you know constant barrage of. Information and bad news, and you know divisiveness that exists in our culture, but I just feel like this this weird sort of malaise that's kind of like sitting on my chest in a way. Where you know the things that normally give me uh, you know joy, whether it's like you know my my son, uh, you know my wife, all these other things, uh, you know it they still do, but it's definitely tempered a little bit. It's uh, it's kind of bizarre, and you know I know I mean other people that I've randomly spoke to. Uh, about this kind of have that same feeling as well where it's like yeah it it feels like there's so much going on and you're trying to just you know kind of keep your head above water so yeah uh, you know ultimately you're not alone that that's a feeling that many of us have um, and I think the only way that you can kind of get over that is uh, focus on the things that you can control you know your own happiness your own self-care your own communities I think those are the things that I always try to focus on and uh, frankly I get the most joy from now at this point um yeah, so that's uh that that's what's happening with that. But um like I said, I'm just uh you know, here is the deal. Rockabilia, okay? I, I, I always talk about them, but I just think that they are such an incredible company and they continue to support the show. And you need to get fifteen percent off your order by using the code PC and you will get fifteen percent off your order. They have a ton of stuff. That is related to Halloween, even though today's Halloween, so I don't expect you to order costumes from them, but you know, they have a ton of great band merch from bands that are, uh, you know, Halloween affiliated, whether it's like, you know, the misfits and King diamond, uh, down to some, you know, more modern bands, like, uh, you know, motionless and white and that sort of stuff. But, uh, they are such a great company. They have so many pieces of merch you need to order from them. I, I, I just, I can't say enough positive things about it. So if you've never had an experience with them, just do it now. Okay. So PC Jabberjaw, 15% off. Um, and yeah, uh, let's just dive into the episode, okay? Because it, it is a real, it, it's not a long one, but it's a, it's a fun one. There's a lot of uh, sort of interesting stuff that gets discussed here um, and that these questions elicit. So I will let myself take it away in a few moments. So <laughs> here's the mailback episode. And thank you very much again for everybody who contributed. I really appreciate it. Hey, I'm back from the intro, right? <laughs> I know it feels weird to just like dive into this after I, I, I'm so used to just being like, okay, now here's the interview. But anyways, this mailback episode could not be possible without you, the listener. Thank you so much for being engaged with this show, for, you know, going out of your way to email questions, tweet questions at me, all that stuff. I really, really, truly appreciate it. Um, yeah cuz this this whole thing wouldn't exist without you caring and listening and corresponding with me and you creating relationships and creating all of these uh these awesome things that keep uh, independent music going. But anyways, let's put all the gratitude aside. Well, no, we don't put it aside. We'll just put it maybe on the back burner. Let's dive into these questions, okay? And I apologize in advance if you feel like these are too sort of you know, loose and ranty in a way. Um, you know, it's the first time I've done this. So, uh, you know, take it easy on me, but, uh, I hope that there will be, uh, some points that I make that you'll be like, Oh yes, I agree. And if you don't agree, email me 100 words, podcast at gmail.com because that's how these questions came. So, and I, by no means am an expert. Okay. I, 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 am not like this, you know, super successful music industry veteran. I've experienced a lot of things. I've seen a lot of things like many people do after they have uh, reached a certain age in life. Like I'm 38 years old, been doing band stuff for a while. So anyways, just want to put all those caveats out there. So let's dive into the first question coming from Joseph from Oregon. I, you know, people, I will include your name if you request, well, you don't request that, but I asked you if you would be okay with that. So anyways, Joseph from Oregon asks, do you believe it is possible to separate the art from the artist? Wow. Cutting real deep, real quick. I was uh, trying to figure out which question to do first, but I was like, let's take a, let's tackle a big one first. So, my own personal opinion, which obviously may differ from yours, and this is all very subjective, is that it is not possible to separate the art from the artist in our scene. And let me give you a few examples and let me kind of walk through this, this thought process. So, you know, granted, like the, you know, higher profile people that there are it is maybe easier to put barriers uh, and distance between this person. So that way it's maybe easier for you to be like, oh yeah, well this this person did this thing. So I'm not a fan of them anymore. So, but I still like the work that they do and you know, like they didn't do anything to me personally and all that sort of stuff. You know, a prime example, obviously Louis CK, clearly has had a fall from grace, made a ton of bad decisions when he was, uh, you know, younger. And even, I mean, when I say younger, it's not like he was like, you know, 20 years old, he made a lot of bad decisions and people look at him differently. Understandably. So totally get that. Totally appreciate that. But can you still enjoy his his comedy? Some people would say yes. Some people would say no, but I just think the larger this person is, their art that they create, like I said, it's maybe easier to like, oh, whatever, maybe I'll just watch one of his specials. It's okay. You know, whatever. But what I am specifically kind of focused on is within our scene, within our independent music scene, is it, is it possible? And I personally think, no, it's really, uh, we live in a close knit community, right? We live in something, even though this music scene has, you know, grown over time and is now arguably mainstream in many uh, in many senses of the term, you know, from bands being able to make livings. Whereas, like, you know, in the early 90s, a lot of like punk and hardcore bands, like, that wasn't really a notion. Like, yeah, a few kind of got through. People would be like, oh, wow, Green Day and Jawbreaker. And, like, obviously, as that stuff started to kind of explode in the early 90s. But, you know, it wasn't until whatever the late 90s where, you know, kind of hardcore bands were able to really start to, you know, carve their niche and be like, oh, bands like Hate Breed and Poison the Well and whatever. But, anyways, I, I mentioned all of that to the fact that we live in a tight, tight knit community. And when you have experience within this community, whether it's like going to shows, whether it's playing in bands and as you start to like meet people and like play shows with them and, you know, buy their zines or see them taking photos at shows, like you start to get to know them. And, you know, it's one of those things where if, one of those people, you know, whether they're playing a band, whether they're doing something else, like just does something that is completely uh, wrong, you know, from either being racist, homophobic, whatever the case may be, you're going to be like, hmm, I don't I don't know about that. You know, like I I reflect on there's uh, I worked at a record store. Uh, here in Southern California. It was called Bionic Records. There's still one location in Cyprus if you want to go. It is a spectacular store. But when I worked there, there would always be a common joke there where it's like, uh, you know, there's a a white supremacist band called Screwdriver, one of like the, when I say classic, and I use that in air quotes, (laughs) a band that is pointed to often as far as being, uh, you know, very uh, loud and outspoken about their white supremacists. Like there's no way that you can misconstrue their message in any respect. And they were, you know, uh, adjacent to the punk scene um, as far as their sonic similarities were clearly not uh, not philosophically. But anyways, their when they first came out, like their very, very first record did not had some racial overtones, obviously retroactively knowing what the band is and was people could look at that first record and be like, Oh yeah, there's, there's, there's sprinklings of that. But some people would always Buddha's joke like, Oh yeah, I like screwdriver, but just their first record because like, that's not, that's the non white supremacist one. Uh, but but was a joke because it's one of those things where you can't look at screwdriver and be like, Oh man, they make good music, but dude, they're racist. They, they do not like anybody that isn't of Aryan descent. And, uh, they're, there's no way that you can kind of separate those two things. And granted that was the band's mission. That's what they were going for. So they didn't want to separate those two things, but I'll give you a, a real world example that I personally went through. I'm not going to name the band's name because I think it, it this band is still exists. They still actively tour. Um, and I have, uh, gotten to know the members over the years and realized that a lot of this was just sort of like youthful stupidity, indiscretion, whatever you want to call it. But when I was touring my band taken, uh, you know, did a lot of tours with a lot of different bands and, uh, you know, sometimes got thrown on tours where it was like, Oh, we're going to go out with this band for like a week or so. Um, so we were thrown on a tour that, uh, was bringing us with this band for about a week and a half or so while we were touring out to a festival. And we, you know, we became pretty close to them pretty quickly cause it was like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, we had, there's a lot of similar connections that we had. And, you know, we then at that time, because none of our bands were making any real money to get like a hotel, we would always stay at people's places, you know, their houses, their apartments or whatever, relying on the kindness of strangers It chose. And, you know, there were times where we both of our bands kind of got thrown together because someone's like, oh, yeah, I can house 12 people. You know, (laughs) like I've got some bedrooms and you guys can all crash at my place, which was awesome because it was always fun to hang out with more than just your band members. Because, you know, after a while that got kind of tiring. But anyways. We, the guys in Taken and myself, like we were, uh, you know, pretty nerdy. Like we, you know, most of us were straight edge, uh, you know, none of us really did anything, you know, debaucherous. Like we were pretty straight laced individuals, you know, like the, the worst that we would do is like sneak into a place like, you know, that wasn't, we weren't supposed to be in or whatever. Like we never, we, we just weren't a scandalous band from that perspective. And so when a person opened their, ha- their homes to us, like, you know, we were really respectful. Like I remember one time and I'm sorry, this is a tangent. I promise I'll connect it back. I remember one time we had a, a drummer playing for taken that, um, you know, he was a young kid and did something stupid where he basically took like a DVD from this person's house. I was so mad about this that I ended up, uh, if I'm not mistaken, like either sent a check to this person or, uh, cause this is pre really, you know, amazon prime days i may have like purchased i just remember being able to rectify that because i was like i'm so sorry this happened in case you were looking for this dvd i don't even remember the movie but anyways that's the sort of like that's just what what sort of people we were and trust me i am not painting us as like choir boys because we definitely did stupid stuff but anyways the point being this band we were staying with and touring with they you know they just did what I defined as pretty messed up stuff. You know, they either would like deliberately steal from people's homes or treat it really disrespectfully by just being like, um, you know, just whatever, leaving stuff as a mess or just, yeah, just crappy moves. You know, like I looked at that and I was like, why are they treating these people like that? Because they're nice enough to let us in the house. And like, yes, they're, you know, a cool hot band that's on the rise, but why are they treating people like this? And the more and more I got to know them and I was just like, dude, I don't know if I like this band anymore. I really, I just don't know. And then, um, then there was an actual thing that happened directly to our band because of them. And granted it was, you know, relatively tiny, but I still felt pretty raw about it for, you know, not many years, but I felt raw about it, especially at that very moment. And so then I looked back and I was like, man, I, I just, I just can't get into this band. So it was a good, I would say, I don't know, five to eight years as the band continued to tour and rise and popularity that I was just like, they're kind of written off for me, man. I can't, I really can't consume their music. I can't really go out of my way to see them. I'm just not going to support them, you know, because I felt like they were, um, their, w- their behavior individually was impacting my enjoyment of their art. So anyways, that's an example. I just do think within our community, not only are we kind of a, a self-policing thing where, you know, the people that are, are egregiously uh, you know handling things inappropriately, whether it 's just you know being s- stupid to other people um granted yes there 's a lot of gray area in this, and there 's no definitive answer for um you know kind of a a catch all response to this, but I personally do adhere to the if the person is a terrible person, like I'm going to be less enthusiastic about the art that they create, you know? And if it's something that's directly harming me, I am going to completely write off the, their band, their art, whatever it is that they're doing. i will be like, Nope, not for me. Okay. So uh, thank you, Joseph, for that question. Hey, we have a new sponsor today and I'm incredibly excited about it. It is musician because straight up, I have always wanted to learn a musical instrument, and I have always struggled on where to begin. Like, do I ask the guys in my band? Do I just randomly sign up for a tutor? Do I just go to a local community college? But then I got introduced to Musician, and holy moly, it blew my mind. So it is your personal music tutor for the digital age. It is the best way to learn, practice, and master a musical instrument because it listens to you play and then gives you instant feedback on your accuracy and timing, and it's free to download from your app store. You can use your real instrument, and the app includes lessons for guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and vocals. Whether you're like a complete beginner like me or an experienced player, you can follow expert design courses that guide you with exercises, and it gives you some songs to play, too. Musician has over 10 million viewers, and they believe everyone can and should have the experience of learning a musical instrument. Now, like I said, I always have struggled with this because I've always been the singer in all my bands because other people around me are far more talented. And so I've been like, man, I wish I could contribute to, you know, writing some songs or whatever. Like I know how to edit when once a person shows me a song, but like, I don't know how to like play the thing. So this came into my life and I could not believe it. I sat down with my seven-year-old son. We started to play around with the guitar and like, you know, I knew some power chords or whatever, but going through these lessons, I could not believe how easy it was and how much fun it was. So become the musician you always wanted to be. Download Musician for free in your app store today, okay? Do it now and you will love it. Now on with the show. This next question comes in from Lindsay from Maine. And her question is, uh, this actually hit really, really home with me because it was something I experienced recently. She asks, when do bands become unassailable as far as their art is concerned? Wow. Like that, that's a very pointed question. And I, one that I thought of recently, I'm going to be releasing an episode in the next couple of weeks where I discussed, uh, I had Nate Newton from converge Uh, and a million other bands, Jesuit, et cetera, et cetera. I had an interesting experience. I I mentioned this, I don't know, maybe two months or so ago on the podcast where uh, I watched Converge tour with Neurosis and Converge played it before Neurosis, understandably so. And I watched them play and there were people there that really didn't care about Converge. And there were people who were heckling them, you know, and like not in a super mean way, Well, actually, no, that's not true. I think they were, you know, like die hipster scum, like all the, you know, those sort of cliched things that you sometimes hear. I looked at that and I was just like, here's Converge, like, you know, elder statesman of the, you know, metallic hardcore scene, you know, genre pushing band that has lived the DIY principles have done things on their own for so many years on their own path. And someone can just like walk into a show and be like, oh, dude, your stuff sucks, which I was like, you know, totally understand where that person's coming from. Cause they were like, Oh yeah, this band sounds terrible. Like I'm just going to, you know, reactionarily yell at them and tell them that they're terrible. But I, I, so a simple answer to the question is I don't think any band becomes unassailable. Like there are certain bands where you look at where it's just like, most people would look at like Fugazi, for example and most people will be like Fugazi is like the standard bearer of independent music where it's like they live by their own rules. They put out their own records. They didn't sell merch. They had $5 shows, whatever, all of these things that bands like wish to aspire to. They want to have like a monicum of that uh, DIY spirit that exists in their band. But <clears throat> there is, uh, there are people that think that Fugazi sucks, you know, like they just either don't enjoy them or they think what they're doing is pretentious. Uh, you know, you can't mosh the Fugazi show or whatever. There's a lot of different threads that people can pull on that could be like, Oh yeah, I just, I, I, I don't care for them. I don't think that they're, you know, uh, well, I, I granted, I've never heard a person make an argument that Fugazi is not valuable, <laughs> but I have heard people being like, yeah, Fugazi, just, just not for me and, uh, you know, move right along. Um, but I think the unassailableness of it, uh, I don't think that there's any band that really kind of like floats to that level. Granted, I am speaking in our independent music scene. Um, people will always have problems with what you're doing. People will always, there will always be critics. There will always be people ready to, you know, throw stones at whatever artist is doing something on their own. And, you know, that that's even extrapolates to, you know, something that is quote unquote, like not credible, where it's just like, oh, you know, bands on Warp Tour that have no connection to like, you know, the DIY music scene or whatever, and are immediately after their first show signed to a big label and on a big booking agent and big time management and, you know, are playing in front of thousands of people immediately. Um that, uh, you know, that, that notion uh, that's easy to throw stones at, at bands like that because they're just like, oh yeah, this band hasn't paid their dues or whatever the case may be. But, um, I think no matter which side of the spectrum that a band is on from like super credible to super not credible, there will always be critics and there will always be people thinking that the art that that particular band or person puts out sucks, sucks and shouldn't be as important. Um, you know, there's always that like underrated or overrated conversation. And I think no matter what you put up to that lens, people will always have opinions on being like, oh yeah, that band's pretty overrated. I don't know about that. You know, Archer's Loaf. I don't know about that. Super Chunk. I don't know about that. Whatever. I'm just picking up random bands. But uh, that's a sort of idea that uh, I think is just is really, really hard. So simple answer your question. I think bands will always be assailable. You know, people will always think that that thing sucks. So sorry about that. <laughs> so this question is a is an in-depth question, but something that I found really, really uh, specific. And I'm, that's exactly the name of this whole whole series. So. Let me uh, let me walk you through this. And I, I need to obscure a few things because, uh, yeah, I just, you know, didn't really want to air the band's name out. But, uh, you know, their their experience, uh, I think, is is very reflective over many of you, the listeners experiences in your own band. So here we go. I play bass in a local punk band from Los Angeles. We put out two full links on reputable indie labels and have been touring nationally and in Europe with the help of a booking agent. Management has been approaching us and our band does well in the Midwest and East Coast. Should we take up management? What sort of questions should we be asking? We do solidly well on merch on tour, between like 3 to 500 dollars a night, but are only making 100 dollars a night on guarantees. Is it time for that next step? Such an amazing question because I think so many people feel like they're in that position when they're in bands, you know. Some people feel like they need management right away, some people feel like they need, you know, a label right away. There's so many different roads you can take and clearly within any pursuit of the arts or entertainment, you're always going to have a million paths to some definition, some broad definition of success. So this is not prescriptive. My response, uh, as far as like, Oh, if you do this, then you will get this. Clearly that's not the case, but I, I'm going to kind of try to tie my own experiences to respond to this question. And then, uh, yeah, hopefully it'll, it'll paint a a broader picture for you that you could be like, Oh yeah, I see what you're saying. So. In short, the simple answer is probably yes. Like, I think that this band uh, is in a position that they have done a lot on their own. They have, you know, whatever, signed to record labels, toured internationally. They've had people that have helped them along the way. And I think it's one of those things where if you feel like management, it's like, oh, I think, yeah, maybe someone else can, like, help us and open up some doors and, you know, create larger opportunities. Um, You know, it's one of those things where I think uh, many people have this conception of management of being like this this puppet master this person that's going to like step in and step into the driver's seat of the band and then you're just going to be like this this you know uh this this willing passenger you know where you're just like oh well, they'll make the decisions and they'll tell us what to do and they'll you know and some managers are like that and some bands want that but for the most part bands in our genre are like okay management i don't know like maybe we can vibe with this person maybe they can help us with some things so I think that this band is in a perfect position to be like, okay, we've done a lot on our own. Let's take the next step, work with management, see what they can do for us. um, And then hopefully we'll be able to, you know, create more momentum for us, you know, make the band bigger whatever the case may be. But if you feel like you've hit that kind of wall internally where it's like, wow, we've exhausted all of our own options and we've, we've worked hard at it for a while. And now maybe, you know, cause the biggest step is like having a manager interested in your band. Like that's pretty cool. And if they're reputable, that's even cooler. And if they're reputable and then also manage other good bands, that's even better. So I'm going to use my real world example. So Taken was, uh, you know, we, we started to get some, some interest and heat after we had put out, uh, an EP and a full length on Goodfellow records, uh, which, you know, the EP was, it came out 2000 full length came out in 2001. And by that time, we had toured a lot and, you know, made a name for ourselves here in Orange County. Definitely not uh, of the same level as many of the other bands that we existed in the same scene with, you know, from like Avenged Sevenfold, Trey You, Thrice, Throwdown, Bleeding Through, 18 Visions, all that sort of stuff. You know, we definitely were uh, on the smaller end of that spectrum. But there were labels that were interested in us. Um, you know, there were labels like A Ferret and Victory. Um, I don't think we actually ever spoke to Josh at Trustkill, But, the, you know... The, of the labels that were around at that particular time, there was interest. There was at least discussions being had because, you know, we were a different band than a lot of, uh, you know, the people that we were were playing shows with. So I remember specifically there was a manager who is still a manager and I will name his name like no no shade against him because, uh, you know, I was the one that was uh, I, I don't know if I'd call it stubborn. But anyways, Tim Smith. He manages Skrillex now, and he is a highly, highly successful manager. You know, managed a for years. I still think has some. No, I actually know he doesn't have involvement with them anymore. But, anyways, he managed Norma Jean for a while. Like, he had a lot of interesting bands going on. and He worked under a bunch of different monikers. Like, Blood Company was a thing that he did. I can't. I don't know the name of his management company now. But you know, he manages Skrillex. Like, clearly is doing well. So I remember he approached. He emailed me. Um, because, you know, we were friends with the Treyu and I know at the time he was kind of looking for other bands, uh, you know, of, of that particular scene to kind of work with. And, but at that time, not many of our friends bands had managers, you know, like that was kind of a new concept. And especially within punk and hardcore where I, the con, the perception of managers was very much, like I said, that sort of, you know, here's a person that kind of steps in and like tells you what to do. Uh, even though that's not the actuality at all, like don't, don't think that way. I think that is, uh, not, I think I know that is stupid and that was stupid of me to not even like really pursue conversations with this, with, with Tim. So Tim emails me and I was kind of like, I didn't blow him off, but I basically in, you know, in no uncertain terms, I definitely was just like, I think we got it right now, but you know, I'll let you know if there, if there is something I didn't even sit down with him. I didn't even have a phone conversation with him. I kind of cut it off. Um, and like i said i really i can't pinpoint exactly why beyond just the fact that things were working well for us and i had that time also started to work at a record label so i felt like i had a pretty good sense of what the music industry was like. And I remember as we started to kind of like talk to other labels and like, I remember talking to Carl at Ferret where he was kind of like, you know, he started to tell me about the, you know, the label. And like, you know, I was like, I was like, Carl, I already, I already know everything about your label. I've had friends on the label. Like, you know, I don't need to know who your distribution deal is with and all that sort of stuff that, you know, some bands, need that information because they don't know they don't exist in the music industry but because that was my job I kind of felt like, I was like I don't, you know we, we can just kind of peel this away like what you know what are you able to offer us as far as an advance for our first record and stuff like that so it was interesting because I think that um, I think sometimes that I don't even call it bluntness on my end but just that like hey we can kind of peel away the, the, the artifice of it we can just like dive immediately into business because I know your label totally cool let's talk And so I think sometimes that puts people that are in that position kind of back where they're like, oh, like I, I don't really do my normal song and dance thing. So, uh, in many respects, I think I, I, bum people out by that approach. And, uh, you know, I don't regret that because I think it's one of those things where I was able to learn from it. But, um, you know, and ultimately I hope I didn't, I mean, granted Carl and I became friends later. Um, he never told me It was just like, oh dude, you were kind of a dick when you dealt with me, uh, when I was like, you know, just kind of showing some general interest in taking, but, Um, I do remember we were going to sign with uh, the militia group, which is a label that no longer exists right now. And, uh, you know, we, again, no management, like we were just kind of brokering the deal on our own and we were going to end up signing with them and they were going to, I want to say they were offering us like I don't know, 12, $13,000 for our first record. Um, and they were offering us a multiple record deal and it just seemed like such a good fit. But then, you know, the wheels kind of fell apart with that. But, um, kind of tying it back to that. That's a real world example of like a perception of what management does of like, Oh, here's this Svengali person who's going to come in and control the band. That's not the case at all. Um, so I think the questions that you can ask in your head as you're approaching this, if you're approaching management is it, it really for me. And I think for a lot of people, it's about the vibe you should sit down with this person. You should have a phone conversation with this person and you should try to see kind of, you know, like what their, what their history is in, in some respects. And some of it will be easily you know, available as far as like, Oh yeah, here's the bands they managed. I've kind of you know, paid attention to their professional trajectory, but you know, you can kind of get, get to know them, get to know who they're working with currently, who they've worked in the past or who they've worked with in the past. Have they worked at record labels? Like what, wh- what is their sort of trajectory in the music industry? Um, But ultimately, if you think this is a person that you like can't go to war with in the sense of like if they bring an opportunity to you and they say, I think this is a good opportunity, the rest of the band is kind of like, no, I don't know about this. And like you're going to have to have those sort of like friction filled conversations to be like, hey, this is like I I don't think we the band, we just collectively don't want to do this. And then the manager is like, "Okay, this is your decision. But like I think you guys are being dumb. Um, you, know, you have to have those that that sort of relationship, and if you are dealing with a person who, frankly, you just don't like to deal with, you don't like to pick up a phone call from them, that that should send you a signal pretty quickly that you do not need to be working with them because this is a person you want to be, uh, you know, getting in a deep relationship with, not something where it's just like, oh, dude, in six months I'm gonna like move on. And you're like, no, I want to be working with this person for years to help build the band to get to a point where we're successful and we're, you know we're making a living off of our music. Um, check around, like absolutely check around with the bands that they currently manage. Like if you have relationships with people in the music industry in some capacity, get a vibe of this person. You know, if people are like, Oh yeah, like that person's cool, but like watch out for the way that they handle this business or whatever. Um, those are all, you know, those are, you kind of have to put all this together in order for you to feel comfortable to kind of move ahead. So like I said, Pull, pull their bands, like hit them up and be like, Hey, you know, do you like working with this manager? And you know, if they're honest, like they will tell you or it's like, yes, sign with them or like, Oh no, I like, yeah, we were actually thinking about moving on with them and like that sort of stuff. So I think all of that is really, really important. And then read the reputation, like, do, do they have a good reputation? Like, are you able to tell within your circle of bands or friends or music industry people? do, are they, you know, well liked, are they a person that's like, oh yeah, like, you know, they do good business or, you know, yeah, they're kind of hard to deal with, but like, you know, ultimately they're, I see why they're doing what they're doing. They're fighting for their bands or they're doing that sort of stuff. So those are all questions that you need to ask to the people around you. Obviously the person who is presenting themselves as management is always going to present themselves as the coolest. Um, you know, you got to work with me because I'm going to be able to open up these doors for you. And like, you got to be able to tell, you know, what's BS versus what's reality. And if you get any sort of that BS detector going off in your head where it's like, I don't know about that. They seem to be promising me a tour next week with like the biggest band in their roster. And I don't know if that would actually happen. Um, Sometimes, sometimes it does. Sometimes it's true. But a lot of the times people kind of come throwing, throwing heat at you being like, sign with me and you'll get this. And you know, sometimes that's appealing. You're like, I don't know, like that could be really cool. But you know, it could be a short lived thing where it's like you get on one tour and then all of a sudden the manager's like, Ah no, never mind, I don't really want to work with that and then it's like, Cool, I've I felt like we were gonna do something cool together, but now we're moving right along. <laughs> so ultimately the vibe is really, really important. Reputation is really important and asking people around this particular manager. But, um, yeah, there's never a simple solution when it comes to this stuff. But if you feel like you've been around for a while, you've released some records, you have some momentum somewhere. It doesn't even need to be like, Oh wow. We're, you know, drawn like 50 people in, you know, our, our home city. And then everywhere else, like no one cares about wait a little longer, you know, like try to figure out, the areas in which you can capitalize on some momentum. It doesn't need to be a huge thing, but just feel like there's something positive going on. And if you are getting multiple people putting out your records and multiple people helping you to get on tours and, you know, bookie places, there, there seems to be something going there. So I would suggest management at this point for this particular scenario. Casper, casper it's like i'm calling my dog casper but you know what i'm actually waving to my awesome mattress that is casper and they are a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time so they got three models the original casper the wave and the essential their mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry not to mention it's an extremely breathable design that helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night it's delivered right to your door in a small, how the heck do they do that size box with free shipping and returns in the US and Canada. The best part is you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100 night risk-free sleep on a trial. After all, you spend one third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. I cannot tell you how much Casper has made a difference in my life. I unboxed it. This was many, many months ago. My son and I had a super fun time unboxing it. And then once I laid down on it, I was like, this this is a whole new world. This is all I need for the rest of my life. So I want to give you $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash words and using words at checkout. That's casper.com slash words, offer code words for $50 off your mattress purchase terms and conditions of course apply, but man, let, let me, let me get you in the best sleep that you've ever had. Okay. Casper, I love it. You should love it too. Okay. And you got nothing to lose. Try it out hundred days. Boom. Okay casper.com slash words, $50 off. If you use the code words. Okay. Now on with the show. Okay. The next question comes from a listener named Mark D from Boston, Massachusetts. And this is an interesting one because I, I didn't, uh, I don't know. I just didn't think about it too much until he posed this question. So why do indie labels still use big corporations for distribution? And, uh, you know, just a little primer for those of you who are, you know, just sort of familiar with the music industry. But distributors are basically the people who are charged and tasked to getting for getting records in stores. So, um, I mean, granted, there are far fewer record stores than there used to be. But like, you know, back when, you know, Target sold a ton of records and Best Buy and, you know, all of your, you know, towers and warehouses and all those other music stores. These companies had, uh, you know, contacts and sales contacts with all of these companies, and they, you know, had many conversations, you know, over a long period of time to be like, "How many copies are you going to stock? How about if we do a sale, you stock, you know, this many more copies, and then, you know, it's 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 a whole thing." And so, you know, now that the music industry has consolidated, there are far fewer sort of independent distributors, and there are a lot of consolidation. Uh, on the you know music distribution side of things, like there are still independent music distributors, but uh, you know for the most part it is large companies. You know whether it's like major labels, and then use, they're using their distribution chains for you know kind of smaller independents, um, or you have larger independent labels that have affiliations with major label distributors, and then they in turn are also able to help out smaller labels that technically can't get a deal directly with the distributor and be able to help. Get their records out to more stores and that sort of stuff. Like, I'll use an example. So, uh, Revelation Records—they are, you know, a very well-known record label, and they have existed for many, many years off the strength of their releases. But you know, come—it was, I want to say, it was like around mid '90s—is when the revelation started to distribute a bunch of titles. It probably is even a little bit earlier than that, but that's when I became acutely aware of it. So, you know, they worked with a lot of different record labels where they, you know, brought in whatever, a hundred copies of the newest release, and then they would sell it to record stores around the world and other distributors and basically make sure that people have the ability to purchase this record from either stores or other distributors and that sort of stuff. So that became a very, very, uh, good business for them while the record label was kind of, you know, just releasing records here and there. And, you know, now it is definitely one of their, uh, bedrock things that they do. You know, they sell a lot to, uh, you know, record stores in Europe and worldwide. And I've had a lot of friends that have worked there that, uh, you know, have either done the buying for the distribution side of things, um, or have done the sales aspect of it. So, but Revelation is kind of an outlier in that, so they are kind of the the independent record label slash distributor. Um, but there are other record labels like uh, Run for Cover, for example. Um, I can't recall, and I apologize for not preparing for this, but they have a, a alignment with a major label distributor uh, to where basically they get their records in you know a larger amount of stores because they have this uh, affiliation with this. Major label that has you know salespeople and a staff and the ability to make sure that you know the newest run for cover release gets the exposure that they need um, and so there is that, you know, chicken or the egg scenario where a lot of uh, labels are like, okay, you know, I'm going to, when I'm pressing up a thousand copies of my record, I want to make sure that uh, everybody has the ability to get it because, you know, there's only so much that you can rely on when you are a label in regards to, you know, pre-orders and, you know, your own social channels to promote the record. And then obviously the band is promoting it via their social channels and stuff like that, you know, because if you press a thousand copies of the record, you know, if the band isn't like, you know, insanely hot and like, you know, touring and all this other stuff, you may sell like two, 300 copies, uh, you know, from a pre-order perspective, which is really good. Um, and then, you know, you're kind of left with like 700 other copies and you have to figure out how to get those around and make sure that uh, people are able to purchase it. And, you know, if they don't subscribe to your email list or follow your record label on a social media channel. So, you know, I, I, I guess the, the simple answer to the question of why independent labels decide to align themselves with, you know, large distribution channels, um, from major labels and stuff is frankly, they just want their record, uh, heard and they want the record out there in as many channels as possible. So I'm going to use a, of course, real world example. Um, you know, when I was working at century media records, in the early two thousands, it was one of those things where um, you know the music industry was, was uh, not in decline. It was huge. Like there was a lot of stores. People were buying CDs. You know, we were able to charge gosh, I don't know, $17 for a CD. Some of the prices were a little bit cheaper than that, but you know, maybe on average you're paying whatever, 12 to 15 bucks. But you know, on the higher end of things, you'd be maybe seeing like 17, 18 bucks, obviously for a compact disc that only costs, you know, maybe, maybe over a dollar to, to produce, uh, if you're talking about artwork and everything else. But so you can see there's a large profit margin from that perspective, but When you're talking about how many people are are eating a chunk out of that from either the distributor, the record label, the royalties owed to the band, like, you know, the record label is actually, you know, making a, a pretty small amount on that. But the example that I always, um, you know, kind of went back to was the fact that there were, since there were so many stores, we had all of these sales partnerships with, um, like I mentioned, you know, Best Buy, Best Buy was a huge channel for us as far as selling a lot of records and we would approach them with these kind of sales incentives where it's just like, dude, you know, the first two weeks of release, can we sell the CD for seven 99? You know, you can pay us whatever $2 a unit. Like, you know, we will eat the cost just because we want to make sure that this record is properly supported. And like, you know, you're going to put it on an end cap. So a random person walking by will be like, Oh, Hey, look at that record. Like I forgot that it came out. So I'm going to pick it up and Oh my gosh, it's seven 99. That's cool. You know, and then that sale would go on for two weeks and then the, the price would kick back up and then, you know, it'd get removed from in caps and all that other stuff. But that, um, <sighs> that is when the music industry was booming. And then as these stores started to shrink their music sales department, it was one of those things where those CDs that you would see in stores, those were 100% returnable. So, you know, say you shipped out, you know, 10,000 copies of your newest release to all the best buys around the country. And the record didn't do well for one reason or another, whether it's like, Oh, it wasn't that good. The band wasn't touring, whatever. There's a million different reasons why records don't sell. You, as a record label, were on the hook for it. And, you know, usually we as a, uh, you know, me working there as like a, you know, A&R project manager, I would be projecting my budgets and I would be, you know, looking at how many copies we're going to sell versus how much we paid for the recording and signing the band and all that stuff. And we would always have kind of a, you know, maybe a 10 to 15 percent return rate which was a safe estimation of kind of the records that were going to come back to us, you know, the records that will, would be in a store and then get shipped back to us after a certain amount of time. Um, But you know, if you were a record that didn't do well and had a high return rate, you know, of course it just completely killed your bottom line. It completely killed your budget. And you were like, wow, we saw like a 35% return rate. Like no one bought that record in, you know, these huge chain stores and it just, it just killed us, you know, from a financial perspective. Um, and then of course that conversation kind of bleeds into the next record where you're like, okay, well, you know, here, the band's guaranteed this amount of money for their net recording their next record. Um, you know, but the retail just did not care for it. Um, and there's no way that we can go back to Best Buy and be like, okay, you know, I know you had an experience with the first record it not doing that well, but like Man, this next record is going to blow off the doors. Sometimes we could do that, and sometimes we could, you know, convince them if there's enough, uh, you know, activity going into the record that there was a reason for them to, you know, Best Buy to take a chance or whatever. Um, but many times uh, we weren't able to kind of go back. Our sale, our head salesperson wasn't able to, you know, motivate them in from that perspective. And uh, yeah, then the band we were like, okay, well, we're not going to sell any records at Best Buy. So you know, what are we going to do? And are we going to have to, you know, cut the band's budget? And anyways. I'm laying out this whole scenario to kind of you know illustrate the point that it's um, it's really difficult when you are releasing records um, to not uh, find partners that will help you get your records out to the most amount of people. And frankly, that's why, you know, so many independent labels do that. So many independent labels sell a portion of their company to, you know, larger music groups, you know, from Rise Records to Fearless. Like a lot of people have done that over the past five to seven years because they either, you know, needed a large influx of cash in order to be able to sign bands and kind of, you know, put the label you know, into a different, uh, tier than what they were. Um, or some of these labels simply just do it as a sort of consolidation, uh, of power in order for them to be able to, uh, you know, faithfully exist, uh, as they have been, um, within the context of a larger music group, you know? So, um, there's no, (laughs) there's no easy answer beyond just like, why do they still do it? because they need the help because independent labels can only exist for so long before they have to um and it doesn't even have to be kind of you know be quote unquote evil man you know the suits that are trying to make money off the cool cool independent record label. Cause obviously there's a ton of labels that you can point to whether it's discord, merge, touch and go, uh, you know, sub pop, all of that stuff. Um, you know, some of them have sold portions of, of their company. Some of them have had, uh, you know, distribution deals or whatever. Um, I'm not going to sit here and litigate and audit each one of those, those labels that I just named. And then, you know, a, a myriad of other labels, <laughs> but People feel like they need to, you know, uh, they need to have options from that perspective, and uh, you know that's why you see uh, so many labels kind of, you know, lining up to um, to work with companies like that, just because ultimately, if they feel like it's a good fit, and they feel like their records are going to get out to more people, um, or you know, in this day and age, obviously, s- streaming and you know the download service providers and all of the people who are getting the records out digitally, um, you know, they gotta make sure that they're having you know, placement on the, you know, iTunes music page and like making sure that they're properly playlisted on Spotify and all those things that, that happen now, you know, if you're an independent label, you're like, what do I do? Do I just email info at Spotify.com? Like that's not going to work. You need to have relationships there. You need to have people that are advocating for your label and your band's Uh, on your behalf. Um, and sometimes it works out well, other times it doesn't work out well, but the only way that you know is when you actually enter that partnership and feel comfortable and are like, all right, let's give it a try. Um, and then, you know, usually these deals are anywhere between like two to five years. So, you know, if an independent label, you know, strikes out and does a partnership like that, um, it's not, one of those things where it's like, Oh my gosh, there's no way that I'm ever going to have uh, the ability to kind of do it on my own again. You know? So I think that's why a lot of labels do that, you know? So that's uh, that's kind of where, where it's at. I mean, there's a lot of different nuances within that and I could probably go on for another 45 minutes on this particular question. Um, but in simplest of terms, that's why, that's why labels feel like they need to have that uh, partnership in order to get their music out there to the most amount of people possible. Um, this, this is the last question, but one that I feel we could probably spend a good two hours on. So I'll do my best to, to answer this, but this is a very sort of, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say a big question per se, but it's definitely atmospheric in the sense of it. It's, it, you know, it's like trying to grab a cloud, you know, it kind of moves and morphs, but I'll read the question and you'll understand what I'm talking about. And this one is from uh, Cassidy uh, Robinson, who is a avid listener to the show and has emailed with me before. And so thank you very much, Cassidy. I appreciate this question. Okay. Big fan here. This is obviously him writing the show. Having grown up listening to hardcore touchstones like Bad Brains, Minor Threat, Dead Kennedys, and the like, I've noticed an interesting shift in nomenclature. If we're basing Reddit on how genres and subgenres are being discussed by the fans participating in them, it seems like a lot of bands playing in hardcore these days, Code Orange, Zabalba, Harmsway, Knocked Loose, Turnstile, take most of their inspiration from what was considered the forebearers of metalcore in the 90s, you know, Earth Crisis, Cave-In, Converge, Hatebreed, Integrity. Meanwhile, what is now more commonly associated with metalcore, Asking Alexandria, Ghost Inside, Parkway Drive, it seems more influenced by melodic, sort of hooky, core with some chuggy, hatebreedish breakdowns. I guess the simple question is, when did this shift happen? Has the mainstream or mall metalcore-ish made more traditional-sounding metallic hardcore bands afraid to use the term? Is this akin to how dissonant screamo bands rebranded as scrams after poppy acts like the used in Silverstein started getting tagged with the label? Also, side question, nails, are they hardcore, metalcore, power violence, or grind? Whoo! like I said, this is kind of like a moving target, but I will attempt to kind of pick out the uh, the, the nomenclature because I do think it is important. It, it, is, uh, it is interesting to kind of watch these things evolve because I guess it, it, the way that I've always viewed it that you know hardcore and punk you know by by the broadest definition of the term Um, It's kind of a lifestyle, you know, and granted, yes, you could be like, oh yeah, punk is a lifestyle where, you know, now people can dress punk and like it means something completely different than what it did when, um, you know, it started to kind of, you know, originate in the UK with bands like Sex Pistols and stuff like that, which were clearly a very, very pointed, manufactured uh, band in regards to what they were trying to do. And yes, they obviously were kind of the blueprint for everything else from that perspective, especially aesthetically, but so I, I always kind of viewed these things where it's like, you know, I still, even though I, you know, do I listen to punk or hardcore all day, every day? Of course not. Like I will always view myself as a hardcore kid, even as a 38 year old adult. Um, and, you know, if pressed, I would always look like, yeah, I'm a punk kid as well, um, because that's kind of my entry point, you know, but someone's going to be like, oh, dude, like you listen to no effects. That was kind of like your, you know, one of your first punk bands or whatever. It's completely different than Dead Kennedys, which I did get into when I was younger as well. But... I think the, uh, the, the shifting in nomenclature, I really do think it's, it's generational where, um, you know, as certain bands, uh, reach new levels of success that kind of predated the bands that came before them Or not predated, but, you know, basically you can't look at bands before them and be like, oh yes, I I see, you know, the fact that they were able to build off the inspiration of what these bands did And then I think it's, it it really is a way for, uh, journalists to then obviously use the term in the broadest sense to be able to describe, um, in the reviews, in the way that they interview bands and to kind of be able to appropriately, appropriately place in context for a person who might just have a very, very topical understanding, you know? So it's like, you look at a band like green day or look at a band like, uh, dead Kennedy's like they are both punk bands. Um, You know, even though people would look at Green Day in 2018 and, you know, be like, oh, this band had a play on Broadway and like, you know, they could not be, you know, less punk from that perspective. It's like, well, they came from that scene and that's kind of how (laughs) that's how they grew up and that's how they uh, probably self-identify. You know, if you were to see Billy Joe and like have a music discussion about him you know, he's, he's probably going to still self-identify as that. Um, so I think, I, I do think the, the mainstreamification as Cassidy pointed out in the question is something that definitely shifts the conversation. Um, you know, it, it, it definitely, you know, Turnstile is is an interesting example because, you know, they are a hardcore band true and true as far as like, you know, their live show, their lyrical approach, the way that they put themselves out there. Um, but you know, arguably that band had a lot of hype Going into the record um, and, you know, even before releasing their record, you know, they definitely uh, put in the work. And so I think that a lot of people that only have maybe sort of a surface level knowledge of punk, but, you know, are completely immersed in whatever the hip hop world or the streetwear scene or whatever then start to understand what you know hardcore and punk is when they watch a band like turnstile they're like oh okay like you know i get it i see where that's coming from and the more people that have the ability to touch that thing to touch that musical genre they're able to kind of you know, look at it in a different way than people like, you know, myself or maybe yourself view it because we've been experiencing it for 20 years. Whereas people who are, you know, 18 years old are experiencing it for the past couple of years. And so it's going to morph and change from that perspective. So I think that, you know, whatever, hardcore metal core, like those delineations uh, become less important the longer they exist, you know? Um, because I do think that there is an easy way to kind of, You know, distill it down to where it's just like, oh, yeah, metalcore started to become popular in the mid 90s, like, you know, early to mid 90s. Like, that's that's kind of the thing. And then, you know, what you define as metalcore now, where it's just like, is a band like Vain metalcore? Absolutely. That I totally. And then is a band like Parkway Drive? You could you could argue that there is some semblance of that, but you know I would definitely feel more comfortable calling them you know they're they're a metal band now you know they that's kind of w- the world that they exist in even though they you, if you probably spoke to any of the guys in the band you know they're hardcore kids so again it's a very nebulous thing and you're kind of always like looking around trying to to grab at the thing um, and I, I think to Cassidy's point as well in asking the question about you know scrams and screamo and like you know how my good friend Tom Mullen does the the podcast and website called Washed Up. Email which is something where you know he started because the word emo obviously he had shifted tremendously in the early 2000s with bands like fallout boy and my chemical romance and all that other stuff and um I think, again, because you look at that and you're like, that word means something completely different now than it did in the mid-90s, you know? And again, you always kind of point to the sort of commercialization of that thing. And every genre kind of morphs and evolves once that thing kind of breaks through a glass ceiling and starts to appeal to a much broader base of people that, uh, you know, become obsessed with a particular band, but maybe don't dive super deep into the genre or where they come from. They're just like, I know I love My Chemical Romance and that is where my obsession ends. You know, I could become obsessed with other bands maybe that are tangentially related to My Chemical Romance, but I'm not going back and being like, oh yeah, like Orchid, Promise Ring, or whatever the case may be. So I do think the mainstreamification of it really, really um, projects the different ways that people view Uh, different styles of music and ultimately the way that they label it. Um, so I do think that, uh, it's something that you have to be, you know, kind of comfortable in the way that it changes and you have to pay attention to the shifts of it, you know? Um, but ultimately I think it's one of those things where people who are really paying attention to that nomenclature, um, are, 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 you know, we're in a really small world, you know, and we, care about it to a certain extent, but I don't think that we should be responsible for, you know, throwing stones at people that are using the wrong verbiage for describing bands, you know, like you can, of course have heated discussions with, with friends about it or whatever. But I think once you get into the, you know, uh, inferiority complex of, you know, bashing a 14 year old for calling a band hardcore when like, dude, you're not actually core, that's when it just gets, it gets stupid and divisive. And you know, that's really not the point of this whole music scene. It's to, um, you know, hopefully embrace people that feel a little left of center. So anyways, but to answer the very, very final part of that, you said Cassidy asked nails, are they hardcore metalcore, power violence or grind? And I think it comes down to the fact the people creating the music, you know, whatever scene that the people that are making it kind of come from. So like I nails to me is a hardcore band. Like, but yes, you could look like the last time I saw Nails was maybe was maybe two years ago, whenever they played Sound Inferior last. And watching them now, it's like, you know, they are like Todd Jones wears a leather jacket and like, you know, has like the in-between song banter that, you know, is kind of lifted from Cannibal Corpse as far as like, you know, just really like, this is our song, this is what we're doing, here we go. And so watching that versus watching when Nails first started to play shows, obviously it's drastically different because Nails is now a you know professional band quote unquote, and you know they they take themselves more seriously than they did at the beginning. But I will always kind of view Nails as a hardcore band. You could you know argue uh, with me that it's like oh yeah they're more of a metal band now, and I'd be like yeah yeah you're right you're right but the way that a band gets kind of imprinted on you initially is kind of the way that I always personally view them, you know, where it's just like, even if they may sonically morph, it's like cave in prime example. It's like, yeah, they, they used to be obviously sort of a metallic influenced hardcore band. And then all of a sudden they just started to sound like, you know, failure meets the foo fighters as they, their career progressed. But it's like, you know, they're still all hardcore kids. They kind of came, they came from our scene and they existed in our scene. So that's kind of the, the inherent DNA to, uh, the world that they're creating with in regards to their music. And so even though sonically it may be different, you know, I'm, I'm always going to kind of view bands through that prism. And I think a lot of people kind of echo that sentiment as well. So, um, yeah, no simple answer to that one, but uh, pay attention to the shifts in nomenclature because I think that's, uh, it's definitely interesting. You know, it's definitely one of those things where the more uh, like you, you I look at how, you know, much, how long our subcultures existed now. It's like, you know, punk and hardcore have existed for, you know, 30 plus years now and we've had, you know, multiple documentaries and books released and all of these things that, you know, some 15 years ago, once I started to like get into this, I, there's, I'd be like, wow, there's like a full length documentary that like kind of lays all this stuff out. Uh, like that just seems insane, you know, but now like every piece of, uh, you know, every piece of, of, um, you know, obsessive information that gets kind of put out either on a website or a book or whatever. Um, it's cool. And I I think it's influencing so many people in so many different ways. And I think that to me, that's what I always get excited about. Is not so much, like I said, this sort of division of the way that, uh, you know, certain bands are labeled, um, which I know that Cassidy wasn't, uh, you know, kind of trying to stir the pot by asking this question, but, um, I think that because this scene is so mature now and there's so many different bands operating under this banner, um, it's nothing but exciting for me. And I just love the fact that, uh, more and more people can kind of get involved in this and get involved as much as they want to, whether it's like on the DIY show level or whether it's like, yo, I want to, you know, be a band that's, you know, as big as whatever, the Menzingers, you know, where it's like, I want to play to, you know, a thousand people a night. It's like, cool. There is an option out there for you. Um, and I think that's incredibly exciting. Whereas, um, you know, when you started playing in bands when you were younger, um, you know, whatever in the mid to late nineties, like that option wasn't really um, readily available. But now that it is, it's cool. I really like that fact. So, anyways, that is. Our episode. Okay. I appreciate all of the, uh, questions that came in. There were a few questions that I had to kind of, you know, uh, chop off and not be able to put in here just because either it, the you know, question was a little convoluted and I didn't really have a good answer for. Um, but I promise you, I did read every single email that came in and, uh, this was kind of the uh, best of the best from that perspective. So thank you very much to everybody who contributed and, uh, next week on the show, we are going to be having it. So it's the end of the B specific series. I know a collective. aw, yes. But now we're going to get back to what we do, what we, how about what I do best or maybe I do best. I don't know. You can let me know that. But anyways, it's going back to our regularly scheduled programming and the episode next week. I'm so damn excited about it's with Ben Nichols from Lucero. I love Lucero and this is something I was trying to set up for months at a time. And uh, Ben and I hopped on the phone and it was, it was spectacular. I got to speak to him about, you know, his brother is a huge Hollywood producer, director, filmmaker, and uh, Ben's stuff has appeared in a lot of his movies. And yeah, we, we, we talk about it all. So that is next week. And until then, please be safe. Everybody don't forget try out musician because you've always wanted to learn how to play a musical instrument, but you probably didn't know where to start. Let musician be the app of your personal music dreams. It's the best way to learn, practice, and master an instrument, and it listens to you play and gives you feedback on your accuracy and timing. Become the musician you've always wanted to be. Download Musician for free in your app store today, okay? Now, for real, goodbye. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.